Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. Every every so often, I have a co-host that, like, their resume is so extensive, I get very intimidated um, when I'm about to start talking to them. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw out a few things for you guys listening out there. You know, the the thing that brings us here today co-writer of the new film Breaking starring John Boyega uh, in parallel parts of his life artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre in London a playwright a theatre director the one-time chancellor of the University of the Arts in London at one point artistic director of the Festival of Black Arts and Culture in Senegal and then also yes at one time the artistic director of the Center Stage Theatre in Baltimore Kwame Kwe Arma is there anything else that we need to lead with to give people the proper context for our conversation with you today. No, thank you very much. My ego felt very well stroked by your introduction. I mean, you did all of it, so I, I certainly hope you're you're gloating around on all of those artistic director and artistic leadership titles that you have. So have you lived like four or five, a dozen lives, one after another? Are they lives that are lived on top of one another? Um, are there are there five Kwamis? Like, how does this all fit into one place? They, 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 they do. They kind of conflate. And on top of conflating, I just don't sleep a lot. Um, but, you, you know, I'm blessed, right? I, I'm from a, I'm the first born of an immigrant family to Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And I grew up seeing my mother and father working three jobs. And they were working three jobs that they didn't like. Right. And I get to do multiple jobs that I do like. I mean, how blessed am I? That's pretty, I mean, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I, this is a job I really, I really love to do. And I, I mean, I, I get to talk to people about the cool stuff they make and the things that are important to them. So I, I too would lo- I have and will continue to lose sleep to hopefully keep doing this well and get to do it with more, many more interesting people, uh, such as yourself. Amen. <laughs> well, and now I guess like let's start. Let's start with the the new work a little bit. Tell the people, the folks at home, a bit about breaking um, and what you you and your co writer and I believe director is who you yeah. co wrote with. Tell us yeah. what you served up for John Boyega to just sink his teeth so deeply into with this movie breaking. Well, first of all, can I say you're absolutely right that that John's performance is um, is outstanding, and you know he is one of my favorite actors anyway, but. But what he did with Brian in this movie um, was extraordinary. And, and for your listeners, uh, this is a story about a man called Brian Eastley, who was a veteran. And he found himself in a situation where he was about to be made homeless. The check that he was waiting for, $892, was the difference between being able to, to look after his daughter, being able to eat, being able to live. Mm-hmm. And when they tell him that he's not going to get it, he walks into a bank and he holds it up, but he doesn't want the money from the bank. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want the money from the people who work, who work at the bank. He wants $892 from veteran affairs. And why I love this story is because, well, love is the wrong word, but why I was so drawn to this story was that it's a 21st century heist. He went in there saying, I have not been seen. I have not been heard. Yeah. How can I be seen? How can I be heard? And so he holds up the bank and then he calls a TV station while he's holding up the bank to tell them his story. And and ultimately, well, watch the movie to see how it ends. But uh, we joined this to help amplify. Um, and John does a brilliant job in amplifying um, Brian's plea to please 
hear me. Please see me. And I, this is this is something that I've, I've said a bunch of times because it's always true with the, the conversations that I have on this podcast, which is that I, it's so wonderful to, like, people bring characters to discuss and then I get to watch it in the context of their work. And with that specific filter, try and find the strings and the through lines from the characters they've brought and the work they presented to the work that they're now making. And I, that's, like, the whole reason for doing this is that cyclical nature of the things that we watch and how they imprint on us and how the creators that I then get to speak to, how they bring that back out into the world. And for you to, to mention with Brian, with John's character in this desperately needing to be seen and to be heard to draw attention to the ways in which he has been marginalized even further onto the fringes it, it, from it by an organization that quite literally owes him, not like in a spiritual way, but in a quite literal way owes him his livelihood. Um, the characters that you fired off when asked about like the premise of the show were Denzel Washington's Malcolm X, Howard E. Rollins Jr., as Cole House Walker Jr. in Ragtime, and Bobby Taylor, as played by star and director Robert Townsend in Hollywood Shuffle. I hope you've got two hours clear, because we've got a seminar to get into. <laughs> and so you brought this, you know, you, 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 you were drawn to this story of this man who, like you said, he comes in here and his priority is like, put me on the news. I want to be on every channel. And it's not because he wants to be a star. It's because he feels like it is his only matter of recourse in this complete erasure of his purpose and existence as a, as a man and, and a human in the world. And then you have these three characters in Bobby Taylor, in Cole House, in Malcolm X, who are, have to push so far forward in order to be seen for the authenticity of themselves and to advocate for those in a community with them, that they end up, like, they and Brian end up running afoul of, like, the carceral and militaristic arms of the police state, oftentimes in these stories. Like, Hollywood Shuffle's obviously a, a satire with a deeply biting sensibility about it, but... Tell me about the the through line there between these characters that were resonant with you and then writing a character with this need to be seen and to and to scream out to be heard and going about it in their various ways. I think that that was the most articulate thing I've heard in a very long time. I, I mean, <laughs> oh my God. Well, thanks. Coming from an artistic director like yourself, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I literally want to want to have that word for word. But I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. There is two things that that have driven my life, and that is self determination. And I first came across that that concept via the readings of Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. I later understood it through the lens of Aristotle: leave the world in a better place when you go to sleep than it was when you wake. Yeah. I think about Cole House Walker in Ragtime. He probably was one of the biggest influences for me in the shaping of Brian. Mm. Because Cole House Walker had in that story a righteous rage. I had no intention of stopping in front of the firehouse, but my way was blocked. I don't know why you did this. I never caused you any harm. You blocked access to an emergency service, and I got witnesses here to prove it. You're lying. He was trying to do the right thing mm -hmm. and live his life. And he bought a beautiful car, and that car got destroyed by vandals. And he kept asking, 
see me. Please repair my car. Treat me like a human being. And eventually, you know, one of the scenes that stayed with me, and I haven't seen that film in what must be 25 years, and it's still with me. But there's a moment when he prays, when he's in a library, he hijacks a library and and and, and he prays and he says, Father, please tell me what to do next. Mm-hmm. Tell me what I should do. Tell me how to quench this rage burning in my heart. You must see how sick at heart I've been. And how I've performed this thing with little appetite. I had hoped you'd reveal to me along the way why you put such a rage in my heart. Tell me what to do now. And I recognize that rage and the way that Harold Rawlings portrayed it moved me from the day I saw it to this very day. I believe that was his film debut and he was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance. He should have won it because that is a (laughs) performance of the ages. It wasn't just contemporaneous. Mm -hmm. It tapped into something that was existential. And that leads me to Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Denzel in Malcolm channeled the energy of a self-determined intellect and spirit who understood and could see a system that was hell-bent on destroying his humanity. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. And what Denzel did in that performance for me was do the thing that Malcolm X did in the writing of his autobiography, codified pain, intelligence, resistance, and sacrifice. All of those with a twinkle in his eye, Mm -hmm. with a sense of, I see you even if you don't see me. And so there is something magnificent, not just about the life of Malcolm X. There isn't anything magnificent about the sacrifice of his life at the end of his story. But there is something everlasting in that if you see truth and fight for truth, no matter what is done in your own time, hopefully it will transcend and it will live forever. (laughs) My father used to say that... uh can't make a rooster stop crowing once the sun has come up. Well, the sun is up. And you, you, you brought up something in, in, in like starting with um, Cole House, like that, that you mentioned that rage. And I like, I think we have such an interesting sort of arc between 
Cole House and Malcolm X and those performances of how this touches on something that I was I was able to talk to Michael Gray Eyes recently, the the indigenous actor, and we spoke about in like the thread through his performances of the righteous like holding back, the heroic holding back of anger that he has mm-hmm. had to train himself to to do in life and in work as as an indigenous man in in a workplaces where he is often the only indigenous man and I wanted to hear from you about where does that line kind of sit between a heroic holding back of and a heroic expression of when it finally because like we have with Malcolm like it gets where the rage that he rallies from his community and his people is in response to such incredible profound injustice that the the rage coming off of him has that sense of heroism and, and as we said righteousness about it and then by the time Colehouse is pushed to the point where he is acting out violently for simply the retribution of I want to serve justice to the man who who has let catalyzed the events that led to my wife's death and to give me back my exact car cleaned and repaired I want Correct. that those two things and then I will leave you all in peace and yeah. so as somebody who identifies with that sense of rage I wanted to hear about that split and where you find that and perhaps how you exercise that through your own creative work? Well, that's a very brilliant question, if I may say. And I think it is something that is a lifelong challenge and that generations shift the line. I mean, we don't have a tidy answer in ragtime. We have Washington Correct. interfacing with Cole House and he's telling him to turn the other cheek and Cole House is, we, you, you speak, you know, like with words from heaven, but it's too bad that we have to live on earth. Vengeance does nothing but perpetuate more vengeance and on and on until some race can find the strength to say no. The wrong done to me, I will not avenge. I shall stand with dignity and Christian love until my enemies are won over because they honor and respect me. And only when this happens, Mr. Walker, shall we have our pride back, all of us. My God, if only Sarah could be here to listen to you. And she thought I had a mouth on me. But you speak like an angel, Mr. Washington. It's too bad we're living on the earth. Amen. And and if I think about what my mother and father had to put up with and not were not able to articulate their pains Mm -hmm. for fear of of societal retribution. And and I I think about the freedoms that my generation in Britain allowed itself to have by having uprisings that allowed people to see the the nature of racism and white supremacy. And and then I think about what my children can do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I listen to my children speak about race in a way that I go, oh my God, that's so frightening in the way that my mother did with me. I remember really clearly when I was about 19 and I began to understand and and talk about this, my mother said, you mustn't speak this way. They will Mm. kill you. And when she said they will kill you, of course, for her generation, she grew up seeing, you know, um, Martin Luther King being assassinated, Mm. uh, uh, Malcolm X being assassinated, political um, activists being imprisoned in their life. And so, of course, it was only natural for her to say that. And so to answer your question, I think I don't have the answer. It's a big question. (laughs) It's a big question and and it's a brilliant question. Here's what I have. 
I have a negotiation with myself mm. says at any one point in time, how do I get from A to B without being diverted by um, institutionalized racism and discrimination, mm-hmm. by structural inequality, or by naked baseline racism mm-hmm. that probably isn't worthy of the energy I will use to, to defeat it. Mm-hmm. And so that means I, I, I tend to, and I found at a very young age, that m- my mother wanted me to be a lawyer for social justice. Of course, we didn't call it that then, but that's really what she wanted. And, and, and by the time I started writing for, for theatre, I, I got to understand that my art was my weapon. It was my amplifier. And so much of the rage that I have, I can plow that. Mm-hmm. into a character, into a narrative, and hope that I have catalyzed the debate that incrementally will make one's environment better. And then where in this arc does Hollywood Shuffle and Robert Townsend, like where in your life were you when you were like, this this movie, this 1987 movie, how did Ooh. that find you? How did you find it? Well, you know, it may feel like it's an odd combination, an, an odd combo. Those. I don't think so. I was, I did not find it to be odd. I, I think it is a wonderful rounding out of these kind of. What I so enjoyed watching, like I was finishing watching uh, Ragtime last night, and it was so like they were su- three films that were such distinct portrait films of of American life. And, and not that that doesn't transcend past past the boundaries of the country, of course, but th- specific snapshots of Malcolm X's life and times that stretches through a nearly four hour epic. But like a portrait of America at that time throughout his life as realized through him and Spike Lee. And then Ragtime, it's this snapshot of the world and the lead up to World War One. And then in, in 1987 with Hollywood Shuffle, we get this incredible little slice right as we're about to come into this sort of blooming era of black American cinema with um, an, an incredible, like where it wasn't, it didn't feel like a, Hey guys, we need to like have a, a race swap or a, a quota that we need to meet here. It was just a thriving ecosystem where we have this incredible blending of hip hop culture coming into independent cinema with sort of the ire and passion that fuels something like a, NWA that comes into cinema and gives us a movement like what John Singleton catalyzes in his films with like Boys in the Hood, where like I was amazed by like the incredible like, wow, I feel like I I wormholed into different parts of American history in my course of watching these three things. So I felt like they had a lot in common in that way. I'd like to say that I think that you are rather brilliant. And um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and I'm overjoyed that we are doing this um, because you're. Your, your, your connection of the dots, uh, not only spot on, but magnificently eloquent. Well, thank you. I so appreciate that. I, 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 I agree. And the reason why Hollywood Shuffle sits in that, in that, in that bubble of, of, of movies is because for two reasons. Number one, um, life is not just about sacrifice, nor is it just about protest. Or is it just about um, the, the the destruction of property or human? Um, protest can come through laughter, 
I understood this with Richard Pryor, the comedy of Richard Pryor, the comedy of Chris Rock. To deconstruct society, one of the best ways to do it is to make people laugh. <laughs> and if they laugh with you, they are with you. And the Hollywood shuffle, I was an actor at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Hollywood shuffle told my life. But the circumstance around it was mm -hmm. magnificent. Robert Towson financed that film off his credit cards, self-determination, mm -hmm. a self-determination act that said, I'm now going to make this movie and I'm going to sell this movie. And in the very making of it, I will determine my career. And so there is an absolute through line. Yeah. And what's hilarious about Hollywood Shuffle is, and I would have Hollywood shuffle video parties. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's how old I am. That, you know, we had video. People are going, video? What is that? Um, <laughs> but, and, it was, and it was a group of actors because so many of us had been into castings where people had said, can you just put your butt out a bit more? Can you walk a bit more black? Can you just... And actually, very little of that has changed. The conflation of black masculinity and hyper-masculinity and toxic masculinity finds its way, it permeates into many every part of American cinema and theater in both Britain and the USA. And so actually the idea that Robert was challenging the stereotypes, he was trying to um, kind of say, refract the way that we are seen and incrementally change it by its very existence meant that I, Frigging adored Hollywood Shuffle. Uh, you know, I, I could go on forever. They were holding Black Acting School. Oh my God, the Black Acting School. Black Acting School. Let's talk to a graduate. This is Ricky Taylor. Ricky graduated from my class three years ago. Ricky, can you tell us what you've been doing since you've graduated? Well, Robert, I've played nine crooks, four gang leaders, two dope dealers. I played a rapist twice. Whoa. <laughs> That was fun. Bits where, you know, where he's running in again, Jimmy, he was my brother. <laughs> Having played the pimp. And, and you know what I mean? I mean, literally, you are going, yo, this is my life. Every one of the instructors teaching the, teaching the black actors how to be black actors is, uh, of course, white. You killed it, my brother. My main man. I loved it, this dude, baby. He was, he was, uh... Cut. Why is Cut. he stopping? Bobby, that was terrific. That was terrific. What, what, why'd you stop? What happened? Oh, there's no problem. I just, I just, I just forgot my line. I mean, it was, I mean, literally, I, I, I laughed for years off that movie. And it was the combination of, of, of him and Spike Lee which mm -hmm. she's got to have it. Again, as you said, with the birth of the new wave of, of, of African-American cinema that actually taught me as a very young artist that um, your job, much like Malcolm X, is to not wait on the man, quote unquote, to do it for you, but for you to attempt to do as much of it for yourself or as much as you can do. And so actually that's the other link is that it taught me um, that you were very gracious, gracious in your introduction and spoke about the multiplicity of, of artistic endeavors that, that I do. And, and actually that was born of Malcolm X, of Marcus Garvey, 
of Spike Lee articulating itself, of Robert Towson, both of them showing us the way that if, if you want to do your own thing, you just got to go out and do it. We're going to take a short break to hear from some other shows on Maximum Fun. But when we come back, more from Kwame Kwe Arma about how these characters fuel his artistic mission. This week, the greatest discovery becomes Greatest Trek. That's because Greatest Trek is for way more than just discovery. We're the hit show on Maximum Fun that covers all the new Star Trek shows. Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Prodigy, Discovery, and any other Star Trek show Paramount throws at us. Come check it out for our funny and formative recaps of all the new stuff this Star Trek industrial complex churns out. It's in your podcatcher every Tuesday. Subscribe to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. Hey there, it's Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. We host Tiny Victories, the 15-minute podcast that's about the little things. Getting into the tiny victory frame of mind is about recognizing minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. Isn't it a wonderful day when the first password you try actually works? When it's freezing cold outside and toasty as all get out in my shower, my tiny victory is that I turn off the water and get on with my day. We can't change this big dumb world, but we can celebrate the tiny wins. So join us on Maximum Fun or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get tiny! Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm here talking with the writer and artistic director, Kwame Kwe Arma, who started out his career as an actor. His new film is Breaking, which he has co-written with its American director, Abby Damaris Corbin. Let's get back into it. I have a, I have a particular fascination with sort of the um, creative fertility of the 90s and of a flourishing of various sort of sectors of film art that seemed like they were allowed to to blossom before people realized what was happening. And they were like, oh my God, we have to put in regulations before people get too carried away. It's like when a startup comes in and nobody yeah. knows how to regulate it. So it just gets away with a bunch of crazy shit because we don't have laws yeah. for it. And so like, you know, like, oh my God, the queers are making movies. Stop them. We don't know. There's too much power here. And so my, but like with you coming up as an actor around that time, what I'm wondering then was what do those performances like where Hollywood shuffle is a movie that demonstrates how rare the role of a Cole House Walker Jr. is how rare the role of Denzel's Malcolm X is and yeah, how yeah. like how much scarcity there is around these quality and poignant roles. What yeah. do those mean to you as as a performer when you see those? Is it like is it like, OK, no, that's like the brass ring or is that like I'm pissed off that there's not more options? Like I wanted to hear about like was the 90s as fertile a time as it seems like in that way? Or is that me just looking backwards with nostalgia and I wasn't there? Like, what do roles like that have on the impact in the moment when you're in the maelstrom of competing for these spaces? Well, I, I think a few things. And, and, and number one, as an actor, I, I would say, uh, you know, at my best, I was only ever good. Okay. 
And, and I get to work as a writer and as a director. I get to work with people who on a bad day are great, right? <laughs> so really in, my, in the back of my mind as an actor, I always knew that I would be transitioning out of it. Gotcha. So when I would see performances, again, that, that what's happening in a Spike Lee film, was happening in a Robert Townsend movie, it was happening in a Mario Van Peebles movie, mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I was inspired not to go, oh my God, I want to act in a role. I want an acting role like that. Yeah. But, or as you've said, recognizing the scarcity then thinking rather than just complain about it and wait, mm-hmm. let me write my own, not for me, but be the change you want in the world. Create movies, plays where the central characters are three dimensional and where they, um, and where they, they, they live up to the true meaning of the creed of, of being an actor, of being an actress, of being able to stretch yourself um, and, and still represent humanity at sometimes its highest and sometimes its lowest. Mm-hmm. And so actually what the 90s did for me, and I've never been asked this question, it's really, and it's a really important question for me, what the 90s did was solidify to me mm-hmm. the need to build the need to create narratives that would by default create a generation of actors able to fire on all cylinders, not just one singular stereotypical one. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 watching Breaking, it was very like it, it like those three movies, like Hollywood Shuffle's not a zag from those from those other films because I I, I did see it so clearly as like a, a portrait of sort yes. of a portrait of of, a, of America specifically, but again more broadly, sort of <laughs> whiteness really and the hegemony of that um, at a place and time that also in its accuracy extends itself out to the ripples of time immemorial, like why ragtime can feel so applicable to watching the, to the lessons of watching Malcolm X in 1992 from like a cinematic standpoint and then watching breaking. I think that is a movie that absolutely exists in the category of those kinds of films to these snapshots that are so, so developed in their specificity that they become stand-ins for like the, the larger and the universal. And I wanted to hear about you diving into something that was like this specifically American moment, but finding your access points into drawing it out into the larger narrative of this oppression and the systemic disenfranchisement that of course extends to, I'm sure, where you were born and raised as well. Like, I can't imagine, like, they've got it all figured out in the UK. I'm not from there, so I can't really speak to it, but, like, doesn't seem like it is. Like, no, we're all kind of drowning in that. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I would say a, a couple of things around that. Number one, I, I, I as you said earlier on, I, I ran a theater in Baltimore, which meant I, I lived in Baltimore for seven years of my mm-hmm. life. And I raised my family in Baltimore. My youngest son came when he was seven and left when he was 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and when you raise a child in a country, it's different. It's different from just surviving by yourself. Your fears for that child become heightened. Mm. And, and I lived during what we now call, you know, post-reconstruction, the new reconstruction. Mm. And that era between what I would call, um, I don't know, from about 2014 to 20, up until George Floyd, that was just a constant crescendo of, of Black men in particular, but not exclusively being murdered. Black mm. women were made too by, by, um, 
by the state, quote unquote, or representatives of the state. And that is not very different in Great Britain. Mm. Britain, in my humble opinion, denies race and mm. America denies class. Again, in my humble opinion. And, and so institutionalized racism um, is just as foul a thing in Great Britain. It, it, it is why at the age of 18, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and could relate to everything that he was talking about in my own life. And he, it had happened to him 40 years previous. Yeah. And so when it comes to creating a character that carries that range, um, one taps into um, not just my experience of living in America, but my experience of being a black man who has had to negotiate mm -hmm. the travails of structural inequality and white supremacy all of his life. And there are times when you hit your head against the wall so many times that you don't know whether you're, you're, you're alive or you're dead. Now, that's not just exclusive to black men and black women. But, but in my particular case, I was able to use some of that pain and rage and sense of solution finding mm. and bring that to Abby's rage as my co-writer around her father, who was a military vet, around mm. seeing what he has had to supersede. And so actually the hook endpoints were not difficult mm -hmm. because um, I knew them within my own life. And sure, I didn't, I haven't served in the military, but the righteous rage, and I keep saying that, I could absolutely relate to. And, um, and, and that allowed an avenue into the spirit. There was a scene that we um, that eventually we didn't shoot. Mm. And I really wanted us to shoot it, but actually in the end, we didn't need it. A, a lovely lesson. But it was <laughs> where before, at the very beginning of the movie, um, Brian goes to see uh, um, someone who he cared about, a woman that he cared about. And his wife, he was separated from his wife at the time. And, and, and he saw her the night before he went to do the act. Mm -hmm. And it was really important, that scene for me. It was a really important scaffold, as we call it. Because actually, this was him saying goodbye to the world and actually building the steps that says, I do not see a way out of this. This will be my last act. Mm -hmm. That was something that I found relatively easy to access. And you mentioned, like, going back to the very beginning of, of us talking and you, you mentioning um, masculinity, black masculinity, toxic masculinity. And I know that, like, in my own, like, communicating about film and, and, and writing things sometimes, like, I, I know that I feel like a great responsibility to, like, honor queer folks and honor women and be like and, and not in the sense of like everybody's got to be a hero but be like I have to do most right by these characters because someone who is not me who doesn't check these boxes isn't gonna do as well and, and I I want to make up for that and I wanted to hear from you about like what do you feel is your responsibility to masculinity at a time when it is under greater examination than previously whereas like you know, it could more more closely, particularly of white men, be, con, you know, colloquially considered sort of the default point of view around which everything else was organized. I wanted to hear how you bring 
invention and creativity and vulnerability and and enduring strength to like you know that combination of things like I think Brian is such a it's such a beautiful performance by by John Boyega because there is you never doubt for a moment his resolve or his like the strength of this person who is willing to perhaps commit their last act for for righteous justice and and to be heard in an act of protest, really. But he is also unfailingly genteel, like a Southern man, and polite throughout the entire movie, too. And it the movie really reinforces to us who we can be sure Brian isn't the entire time. And that's somebody who's going to strike one of these women like I don't think that's a spoiler like hey guys he's not that kind of man so but I wanted to hear from you about that kind of responsibility of authorship again a a very beautiful question if I may say thank you my my mother and father were together all the days of my life Mm. and uh, my mother passed and then my father passed I'm sorry thank you however though my father was very present my mother taught me how to be a man. And we might reframe that and say, it's my mother that taught me how to fulfill my potential as a human being through the lens of being a black male at this point and at that time. And so when it comes to responsibility, actually, I do feel a responsibility to to characterize, to not um, contribute to not the stereotype, Mm. but the archetype that Mm. black masculinity equals or black maleness conflates with toxic masculinity. Mm. Because I, and my responsibility is because if 90% of the narratives that present black men in them, in the mainstream, have them living out the archetype of being, quote-unquote, the thug, quote-unquote, the thing that needs to be superseded for people to find their freedom. The, 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 the guy that belongs, that sits in the economically um, disenfranchised economic class, mm. then actually then I am contributing to the codifying and distribution of an image of Black maleness that A, I don't believe in, and B, I know it's not true exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do take the, the portraying of black masculinity very seriously, and, and, and which is why Brian, as you said, was so attractive to me. Because though he was ultimately doing something that no one will condone, mm. he was absolutely doing something that at its core was violent. He was a kind and a thoughtful man who was railing against the system in the only way he knew how at that moment he had tried everything else. Brian is a dream for me because he runs counter to the narrative of the toxic, hyper-masculine black male that destroys all things around him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that one has to create a dimensional character that, that is only good. That's not what I'm no, talking no. about. No, no. It's threatening to blow up a bat. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, like no one wants their son to come and say, yes, you know, that's, a, that's something that you should do. That did feel like a, a beautiful part about a 90s cinema was antiheroes and, and people doing bad things and being your protagonist 
Like, who's yeah. ever been cooler than the whole cast of Set It Off? Nobody. And like, come on, come on. <laughs> but you're right about responsibility. And and I would finally say, I I feel a responsibility to 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 black masculinity in whichever way we. But I also have that to to black women. I have that responsibility to the trans community. If there is, I have that responsibility to everyone that is in any narrative that I am part of creating. And why? Because we have to try and leave the world incrementally better than it was when we started. And those who are disenfranchised need allies in order to help debunk up archetypes and stereotypes and damaging images that will affect their life chances. I, 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 I can't do this. What do you say? You can't do this. What are you talking about? You can't do this. This is not the kind of acting I wanted to do. This is, this is bullshit. Get him out of here. Get him off the set. I'll have someone else do it. I'll do it. You got it. You ain't shit. Oh, come on. You're blowing it for all of us. This has got to change. So this is work. Shit, there's work at the post office. The last thing I wanted to ask was, I had a a, a wonderful conversation with the excellent filmmaker Nikki Atujusu uh, a couple of years ago at this point where I asked her if, like, is the rhetoric of change... Like, we want more and different and better in Hollywood actually matching the pace of actionable progress. And a thing she said to me at the time, this was in like 2020, it was like a lockdown Zoom. And she was saying what she was still finding was that when she was in rooms pitching, she still like, she was like, it's just amazing. Like, white people would rather see themselves as the bad guy than not see themselves at all. She was like, I still find that my blackness has to be defined compared to a white sort of tent pole around which it is organized. So the people that I'm pitching to who are white feel more comfortable with what I'm saying. They're not necessarily policing my blackness, but what they are doing is like, but then the white person is the neighbor. Like they gotta be there somewhere. And I'm wondering if like in the, in the long and multidisciplinary career that you have had, have you found, has the needle moved in your experience of your ability to force permission to just define yourself alongside yourself as the norm and as the the singular center, as opposed to the other in contrast to? Are you finding that that is something you are beginning to be able to accomplish? You are being able to accomplish? Like, is that happening for you? Where you just get to be the fucking standard around which something is defined. Um, I became an artistic director because I found myself complaining about um, choices that other di- artistic directors were making. Mm-hmm. And my mother said to me, you shouldn't really complain until you have walked in their shoes. Have you walked in their moccasins? Mm-hmm. So the reason why I am an artistic leader uh, is so that I can set the standard, so that I am a gatekeeper mm-hmm. and that Within my world, um, it is set up to serve my right foot or my right. Um, And so we are seeing real changes, I think, across multiple sectors. There's more diversity in leadership positions. And I think ultimately, the more diverse the organization, the wider its scope of listening is. Mm. 
And, and so I am, I am seeing incrementally an opening of the doors of leadership mm. right across the sectors. And that is both brilliant and challenging. You can't pitch to a black executive now and go, and they don't tell you that, they just didn't understand. <laughs> you just got to go, there's white folk, they don't get it. You know what I mean? It's, it's like it's, it's taking away one of those crutches that you might have had. Um, so I, I would say we are seeing progress. But I tell you where I really see huge progress at entry level mm. and beyond in Hollywood. I am seeing such diversity in development um, and literary and, and uh, you know, people in acquisitions. Mm. I'm seeing, there was just kind of explosion of, of BIPOC people in that. And that is making me really, really happy. Well, that, thank, I, thank you for, for giving me that boots on the ground, uh, for that correspondent report. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Kwame, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and have this expansive conversation about sort of a little bit of everything. I really am grateful for you having, having the, the willingness to, to get into all of it. I have to say, I, I found this interview most edifying. <laughs> I've literally, I've been writing things down. Um, <laughs> well, I, I am grateful for your time and thank you again for joining us today. Peace and love. A huge thank you to Kwame Kwe Arma for sharing a bit of his brilliance with us, his expansive brilliance. Um, Breaking is in theaters now in the U.S. and Canada, and neither of us was kidding. It's a phenomenal performance from John Boyega that I hope you guys will go check out and and watch that actor extend his range uh, even further and further as time goes on. And now I have my one quick thing before I go, which uh, this time around is something that is in small part about me Um, for the past... Uh, really only just like the past month or so, I have uh, entered a project called Give Me an A as a producer. And Give Me an A is an anthology film composed of genre shorts. There's mostly horror, but there's some comedy in there. Um, And a lot of surreal tours into the terror of a world that now um, has seen Roe versus Wade shredded by the Supreme Court. Uh, the executive producer on this, Natasha Holovy, she herself is a writer-director, and when the verdict came down from the Supreme Court, she pulled together a big cohort of filmmakers she knows, and they were like, what are we going to do about it? And the answer was to, at breakneck speed, make something that would exist as an artistic immediate response, immediate response to what is going on with reproductive rights and autonomy here in the United States. And that meant um, shooting over a dozen short films uh, in the span of just 11 days and running around the city of Los Angeles with a couple camps set up in Atlanta as well making a movie as fast as humanly possible, but with all of the care and intention and attention to detail that would go into the most long-considered, long-developed piece of work that you ever did see. Uh, It has been 
a phenomenal effort to watch unfold. It has been a phenomenal effort to be a part of. And uh, we're not done yet, but we're on our way. We have been, we are deadline official, y'all. So that's how you know it's real. Uh, and I just want to shout out, I'm, I, it, the list is long, so I won't say them all, but just a, a few of the directors that I know personally involved in making shorts for it. Monica Morsuriyagi, Dana Jacquet, Francesca Maldonado, uh, Megan Rosati. There are, like I said, many more. There are so many names. Uh, it wouldn't be one quick thing. It would just be an episode of me listing off people saying, I'm so grateful for the work they've done, but those are just a small sliver of the filmmakers involved in this project. Uh, And I can't wait for you guys to see it. Uh, We're already extremely proud of what's coming along, and we are so excited for the final product to hopefully be out in the world, honestly, as fast as possible. Like, we want this to be a thing where, like, it happened, here's how we feel. It's not something we want, like, to kick around for, like, the next year, and then it comes out after, you know, the news has turned many cycles around, but be like, no, let's let's get this into people's eyes and consciousnesses as fast as possible. I'm just so proud. Just so proud to be a part of it. Um, And it's really incredibly inspiring and motivating to watch what a bunch of collaborative and generous and giving people are willing and able to do when they agree that the whole is something bigger than themselves and worth focusing on and driving toward that goal together. That's what it's all about. That's that's truly what this whole goddamn thing is about. Um, and all the rest is just window dressing. So go uh, Google, give me an A anthology. You can look at names like Molly Quinn, who's attached to it, and Sean Gunn, who is a part of it. Uh, We've got some cool actors. There will be more news to come, of course, because this is an industry announcement, so there's always more news to come. We can never tell you everything the first time we say something. Um, But yeah, that is my one quick thing before I go. And that is is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingSceneAtMaximumFun.org If you want to follow me, I'm Jorkru on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. This show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported